You're listening to Trending with Timory. So, what's trending? Joining me today is Helen Alvray. She's a professor of law at the Scalia Law School at George Mason University. And Helen's graciously agreed to join me today to discuss a hundred years of women's right to vote that was ratified in 1920. Now, the reason we're talking about this today is because this was first voted upon as it began to pass through the House of Representatives on May 21st, 1919. And so I want you to get ready for what will be a storm of a summer talking about women's rights, the rights to vote, and whatever upcoming legislation may be coming our way. Helen, welcome to the show. What can you share with us about this 19th Amendment that's also nicknamed the Susan B. Anthony Amendment? Right. So it is really hard for people to imagine a time when people thought generally that women weren't sufficiently intelligent or rational to cast a vote. Um, It's I mean, if you watch, like, really old movies and, you know, all the scientists and smart people are uh, are men and women are like, you know, the, maybe the, the nice gal at the office or there's sort of like one woman who has a little spunk, you, you kind of get the atmospherics of a time when it was just presumed that men were more fit for... Uh, having opinions and having informed opinions. Um, so the struggle for the vote was very long. Uh, you know, it went from the 19th century into the 20th century. Um, you had some states prior to that granting women the vote, but here we have a constitutional amendment. And when something enters um, an amendment to the Constitution through the Bill of Rights, it means that states can do no less than give that right. They could give more rights but they can't give less. And uh, the idea it started really from that time to today that there was such a thing as, quote, the women's vote, unquote, um, which ignores, you know, year in and year out polls showing that women diverge in their thinking as do men, as do all humans. But the the zest for capturing the women's vote still makes a good headline, and so you still hear about it. Mm, isn't that interesting? There's a separation. What's fascinating to me is when I look back at the women's vote, you know, at the beginning of kind of the right to vote, there are all these people talking about, you know, we're waiting for this voting block, but it really, fascinatingly enough, took a lot of women a couple of decades to really start voting. Helen, why do you think that was? Uh, some of it was cultural, some of it was personal, um, probably cultural because people had come from various backgrounds which um, just discouraged or didn't encourage women to vote. The idea was that the man spoke for the household and um, that, you know, she she shouldn't. Uh, it wasn't really her purview. There's a hysterical writer. What is her name? Oh, Dorothy Sayers. You've heard of Dorothy Sayers. I think she was part of a famous circle of intellects and women and men. And she tries to get people. She has a, a, a little book about women's rights. And she tries to get people to imagine what it felt like when people spoke 
to women about the things that should concern them and the things that shouldn't by imagining a dinner party where a man starts to talk about politics or candidates and the woman says to him, oh, don't bother your little handsome head about that. (laughs) I think I'm going to say that to the next guy. I say, don't bother your handsome little head about that. We'll take care of it. There was just, so it was the idea that it, it wasn't important for her. Her role was not public. Her role was not civic. Her role was strictly at home as opposed to two notions, one that her role was both in the home and out of it, and the other idea was that what she did in the home made her very fit and particularly well-equipped to think about what society should be and that Mm -hmm. she would have been a very, very informed voter about what ought to be. Right. That is Helena Alvarez. She's a professor of law at the Scalia Law School at George Mason University. In fact, she has consulted both Pope Francis and Pope Benedict XVI during their papacies in the Pontifical Council for the Laity. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. If you'd like to share with us your thoughts on the topic today, you can head over to relevantradio.com forward slash trending and send us a message from there or get connected on social media. So one of the things that always fascinates me is that today's feminist movement tries to claim that they have been the pro-woman movement since the beginning, and they are the same woman as those who fought in the suffragist movement. Now, what's interesting to me is if you look, for example, at Susan B. Anthony, she is one of the early feminists. And like many of her comrades, she was incredibly pro-life. And one of the big things that they were advocating for and why they were advocating for the woman's right to vote was because they wanted to bring the female opinion and experience into voting and into the legislature because they experienced the family in a very different way than men did. Yes, that's, that's a good way to put it, actually. Um, the label of feminist has meant many different things over many different periods of time. It was very synonymous with being a suffragette during, you know, the, the 19th and early 20th century from, from, from the perspective of today. The, then in the 1960s and 70s, it began with regard to um, it really wasn't what we think of it today, which is sort of abortion and contraception as a proxy for all of feminism. It was really about equal rights at work, equal rights to education, right to equal pay for equal work, and, and a certain valuing of women's intellect. And today, however, um, thanks to the sort of unceasing drumbeat of groups like the National Abortion Rights Action League, Planned Parenthood, People confuse the movements for, you know, forcing the little sisters of the poor to pay for contraception or the movement for abortion with feminism, as if equality is only achieved when there's women, there's men, there's sex, and neither of them has to have a baby. <laughs> and, and by any means necessary, first contraception, and then when that fails, which it does so often, um, abortion. Mm-hmm. And it's sad because that second wave of feminism that you're talking about was basically what has taught women to the point today where we don't want you in the workforce or in academia. We want a male version of you in the world. And it's heartbreaking because this has confused so many women. So why do you think that today's version of feminists who now fight for absolute equality, why have they lost track of what originally mattered most to the original feminists? 
You know, my husband has an expression that America is an economy with a culture attached. And I actually would say that a large part of the reason is because in the end, it suited the economy. It suited business. It suited efficiency. It suited the way education operates. It suited the way manufacturing operates. It suited the way big offices operate. To have the, what, there's a, there's a, scholar named Joan Williams calls the ideal childless male worker, Mm -hmm. um, whether it was a male or a female. (laughs) And I I think the reason is less, it's, yes, there's elements of, of people who don't want to have responsibility for a relationship or a society that regards, you know, sex for pleasure as infinitely, you know, superior to sex related to children. There's all these things, but I actually think that maybe the biggest reason is that it suited the economy to demand that everybody uh, accord to the childless male worker model, and they called it feminism, but that was just because it was useful for them. This is this is like Target selling rainbow T-shirts, not because Target has any you know deep commitment <laughs> to sexual orientation issues, but because they thought it would make Target stand out and sell more T-shirts at the beginning of the same-sex marriage movement. Um, I, I think economics is just a huge feature of it, and I think ironically, you know, here we are fighting against the man, and and all we did was sort of fight to succumb to the man, the man being sort of the way things get done that puts money and efficiency before it puts people and relationships and families. I have been thinking about this, especially since last summer. I feel like the two options for women in today's culture is they have to sacrifice, they're told they have to sacrifice one or the other. It's a productivity versus femininity. You can either be a woman and live out a fundamental part of who you are, or you can hang that and be absolutely productive and kind of become a cog in a machine, sacrifice your fertility, sacrifice getting married, sacrifice all relationships. And so the question stands, how do we recreate a world that still allows room for a woman to have a child and to raise and love and put time into her children in marriage at the same time as being involved in maybe a smaller or larger capacity later on in the workforce? Um, you know, one thing I always like to remember is that the people who allegedly make these rules about what constitutes freedom for women, what is feminism, what is success, if you actually look at their lives, they get married, they have marital childbearing, they stay married. <laughs> the the data on marriage, marital childbearing versus non-marital, and, and stable versus a, a, a dissolving marriage is so much higher for people with privilege. That is, the people who are setting all the terms about what constitutes freedom and fairness and feminism. So this is what they're choosing. And if that's what they're choosing, and they have all these privileges uh, and an ability to choose, it must be because it's pretty darn good. So the idea that they could possibly set a standard that says, no, 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 it's cool for me to get married and also to have work that's interesting, but I'm sorry you can't uh, because it's not really very feminist, is it, to get married and have mm-hmm. kids. Um, now, certainly, money and education is a part of this, but they've made it possible for themselves. The question is, will they help make it possible for everybody? To me, it's one of the great civil rights issues of our time, the, 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 the huge gap in marriage, marital childbearing, and stability versus divorce between the wealthy and the poor. And so it, it can be done. 
clearly it's desirable because they're doing it for themselves. And um, the question is, how will we make it more possible for others? And I guess part of the answer is, number one, there is no such thing as a balance. When you get married and have kids, um, your family just comes first. I mean, it isn't really yeah. a balance. It's, it's a hierarchy. Number two, you probably will have to get adjusted to um, – you're going to have to sacrifice one thing for another. You're going to have to sacrifice some money, et cetera, probably the size of your house. But that means you have to reorder your priorities, and you really have to decide what do you want your days to look like? How do you want to live? And really think about that very specifically. Don't live beyond your means. When you don't have children, that's the time to do sort of the time that involves crazy stuff in your career. And when you do, you take all that capital you built up by being a, a lovely worker, and you say, uh, so here's what I want, <laughs> if you can do that. And you, you really are going to have to make some economic and time choices. It's not going to be easy, but it also is far preferable to not having the opportunity to have that relationship, to have that stable marriage, to have those kids. They, they deliver, putting this in really utilitarian terms, which doesn't sound attractive as it's rolling off my tongue, um, but they are far more meaningful in the long run and, and worth the sacrifice. I, I always tell my students, don't live up to your income. Allow yourself a place to jump off when you decide, I'm really putting my kids first means I can't continue the way I am. Um, don't have unrealistic material expectations. Slow and steady, building things up over time. Um, not having to have everything new and shiny. Um, <laughs> relying on family and in groups. Um, it certainly can be done. And in fact, most women do it. But the big question to me is the, the ridiculousness of those who, quote, you know, set the table on this. They're choosing really good things for themselves and their children. Marital, childbearing, stable marriages, they need to make it more available to other women. And they need to talk it up mm-hmm. and not just say, oh, it's, just, it's not a problem if we have a 40% out of wedlock birth rate mostly concentrated among the poor. That's fine. Oh, well, then why didn't you do it? <laughs> why did you okay. choose this other thing? Oh, it's easier. They, they actually need to talk up the lifestyle, which is stable marriage, raising your kids there that works for them. And it works for, for people generally better than others. That's Helena Alvarez. She's a professor of law at the Scalia Law School at George Mason University. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Helena, I have a question for you that I really think um, needs to be asked, and then we need to implement an answer to this a little bit better. And that is, how do we have a conversation with teenagers and college-age women about their fertility in a way that's respectful but also helps them to understand that fertility is a real thing and that women are sacrificing it for years and then all of a sudden discover later that they weren't able to conceive a child? If you could give kind of a brief answer on where you would go with that. Yeah, I think first you do have to recognize that this seems like it's a far off in another galaxy to them, right? Second, <laughs> you need to talk about it the same way you talk about their other health and the environment, that you have to keep it. You have to be healthy. You have to be knowledgeable now for the long run. They'd appreciate that about the world at large, you know, the ambient environment. It also applies to their body. And third, teaching people natural family planning and how to d- tell what their body is doing really has enlightened a lot of young women about how amazing their body is. And I guess fourth, to really have conversations about the pain of not being able to have children 
uh, when they want them, of destroying their fertility in some way, of, of deciding that, oh, it's fine, I'll get pregnant at 40, when actually it's very hard. These are no slam dunk. Again, it seems very far off to them, but some things can be done. Absolutely. That's Helena Alvarez. We'll be back in just a little bit. We'll be talking about the Equal Rights Amendment that you're hearing a little more buzz about again, especially with the new show on Hulu called Mrs. America. We'll be right back here on Trending. Timory will be right back. You can reach her on Instagram and Twitter at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You can listen to more of Trending with Timory via the Relevant Radio app or at relevantradio.com slash trending. So I don't know if you've been watching the show Mrs. America on Hulu, but it is an absolute sh- like a kind of smear on any type of pro-life, or anti-feminist in the culture. In fact, Phyllis Schlafly is a Catholic pro-life individual who opposed very intensely the Equal Rights Amendment back in the 70s. And she went up against radical feminists such as Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem. And it's fascinating to me watching the show because I feel like they show Betty and Gloria in a much better light than they show Phyllis Schlafly. And the whole story is kind of telling the story of the battle over the ERA. Kate Blanchett plays Phyllis Schlafly, which is entertaining because she really does not agree with anything that Phyllis stood for. Joining me today is Helen Alvarez. She's a law professor at George Mason University. Helen, I would love to hear your thoughts on the show. And also, if you could help break down what the Equal Rights Amendment is, because I feel like it's not been well represented yet on the show. So, the... um, I do not watch the show because I don't watch a lot to the extent I watch anything. It's either like a documentary or like a European murder mystery. (laughs) I love it. I am with you. (laughs) Yeah. So, but I have read the kerfuffle about it in the news and the portrayal of Phyllis Schlafly. I actually encountered Phyllis Schlafly more than a few times. uh, And, uh, you know, I also was familiar with her work on the ERA um, and the the ironic thing, of course, is that what they don't really portray in the film is that her worry over the ERA was, ironically, stuff that's come to pass, exactly come to pass. She talked about things like, uh, you know, no special facilities for women for safety or privacy or modesty. She also talked about the fact that the language of non-discrimination in the Equal Rights Amendment would be used to demand uh, that women have access to abortion, that the government would be required uh, to give women access to abortion. And she demanded that the other side say, listen, like, if that's not true, then just uh, change it. Okay, just change the text of the amendment. Um, you know, the, the, the actual amendment that said women shall have equal rights in the U.S. and every place subject to its jurisdiction. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the U.S. or by any state on account of sex. Well, gee, it sounds like so wholesome and exactly what every woman would want. But she said, I think that you're going to start to interpret things like uh, a hospital's refusal to perform abortions or an employer's refusal to insure for it, or a doctor's refusal to perform it, as so associated with women that you're going to start calling it 
um, a sex-based discrimination. And that is exactly what has happened. Um, in fact, discrimination on the basis of sex, just that word sex, which we know in the civil rights laws, for instance, of the 1960s, was meant to speak about male and female, has also been used, most particularly by the Obama administration, but also by a number mm-hmm. of lower courts, to include um, sexual orientation and gender identity. Right. <laughs> so the everything she predicted that would come to pass has come to pass. And she said, listen, if I'm wrong and you will not use this amendment for those purposes, let's fix the words so that it doesn't Mm -hmm. cover what I fear you will use it for. And now, all these years later, they are using it for that. The Supreme Court, in fact, has a case in front of it right now. It's going to decide it in about a month where a lower court was using the word sex to include transgender or sexual orientation. And if you have something in the Constitution that's written that generally, we all know what it meant in the 70s, but courts are willing to make it up as they go along if they get away with it. Um, and so are the movements willing to say, oh, no, 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 we never meant that. We meant this other thing. Phyllis Lassley called them on it. They never satisfactorily answered it and said, they just said you're wrong, but they refused to prove it by changing the language of the law. And isn't it fascinating? Joining me is Helen Alvray, professor of law at George Mason University. And I'm fascinated by the fact that language that was meant to be used to protect, honor, and respect women, that exact language using the word sex in various documents is now being flipped instead to protect women to actually expose women to harm. For example, just in kind of the concern about private facilities for using the restroom and the safety of women being allowed to use a restroom without men entering into their private space. I mean, now it's exposing women to harm in a way that's just unfathomable to me. And it's also very problematic for religious liberty because a, you know, religious institution will say, hey, we're doing such and such because it doesn't conform with our religious identity or the person has engaged in an action. And they'll say, no, no, no. Your refusal is sex discrimination, Mm -hmm. and you're not allowed to do that. Um, And they'll say, no, 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 we won't go along with an activity. Someone has entered into a same-sex marriage or someone has undertaken a transgender surgery, and our teachings will not go along with that. And they'll say, no, that's – and so they say, what we're really doing is we have a problem with the conduct that a person has engaged in. The court says, well, we're not really going to make a distinction between status and conduct. We're just going to call what you're doing discrimination against a person based on their sex. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was one of the leading arguments. Justice Kennedy was sort of messy about it, as was his entire opinion in the same-sex marriage opinion in 2015. But one of the arguments was that a refusal to recognize same-sex marriage was discrimination on the basis of sex. That is, if the person mm-hmm. wanted to marry someone of the opposite sex, you would say yes, but the same sex, no, ah, sex discrimination. So mm-hmm. the language has been used in, in such an infinitely malleable way and a way that today is uh, threatening religious freedom in a big way, especially at institutions vis-a-vis employment, um, it was going to be trouble. It's been mm-hmm. trouble right now for girls' athletics. Uh, you see right. that in the news. Um, you actually have some young women, I think it's in Connecticut, who are suing because they are no longer able to win competitions uh, if, there's a, um, if there's a male in the competition who is running as a female. Yeah. And uh, all of this was 
uh, was presaged by, by Phyllis Schlafly's comments in the ERA. Now, it is interesting because as I've been watching Mrs. American, I think I'm only three or four episodes into it, they keep kind of using the draft, her opposition to the draft and things surrounding alimony as her main arguments. And they never give a full argument. They always reduce Phyllis and her movement to baking bread and wanting to be housemakers. And here's a highly intelligent woman, someone, in fact, who I imagine... Yes, a lawyer and who many feminists would admire for having spoken up in many of the circumstances that she did. And so the fact that we get nothing about what the ERI was really about and what kind of some of those philosophies has led to shows me that they are pushing yet again for some of the ratification of the ERI, which we've also seen passed again over the last couple of years. So can you speak a little you know bit to really... this new push? Go for it. Yeah, so the new push, well, there, there's some complicated legal claims in it. One of them is a question about what is the deadline for states to ratify uh, the ERA. The 70s. <laughs> yes, right. And can states that had previously said no turn around and flip their vote to yes? So that, that was one question. And the other one is still that question about abortion. It's just fascinating how much abortion drives politics, candidates, judicial appointments, and constitutional amendments. There is, I think, a legitimate fear, you know, from from my lips to God's ears, that the current court understands that Roe v. Wade was an absolute out-of-thin-air invention of a non-textual but constitutional uh, right to abortion, because five members of the court, well, in that opinion, it was was more than that, said so. But... um, the idea is if that Roe, and maybe even same-sex marriage, although I doubt that they will overturn that anytime soon, even though mm-hmm. there's no constitutional basis for that either, um, if they overturned them, they would want another amendment where they could locate the abortion right in the Constitution, and they would use the ERA. The, mm-hmm. If you actually look at what, what is it that women are so concerned about, what's, what's the hair-on-fire question now? Uh, you know, you have some concerns about whether women are still being uh, paid equally for equal work. Um, there's a big fight over whether men and women really do make the same for doing the same work. Most of the evidence is that generally they do. The gap between men and women is because women choose to um, uh, take breaks in their work career to take care of, uh, of domestic things, of children, uh, and that that is really the largest um, uh portion of the gap between men and women's take-home income. So what's the big thing hanging in the air today? Well, if the abortion is threatened because of Mm -hmm. the membership of the court. And the ERA would be a way uh, to, again, attempt to instantiate abortion into the Constitution without the word abortion appearing in the Constitution. Now, would this bring it into the individual state constitutions? What happens if something is in the federal Constitution, it means states cannot give any less rights. Yeah. States can do more. For instance, the federal constitution doesn't give, you know, protection to certain kinds of state birds or animals, right? But state mm-hmm. constitutions can. They so have this to is... allow the abortion of human beings, but they can protect right. animals in a state constitution. Right. So this is them so sidestepping it's... in the event Roe v. Wade's overturned. Yes. And it would be federal and it would trump every state law, every every federal law and every state constitution if uh, they got it in, and they would undoubtedly be working to have it interpreted to protect abortion. 
Now, Helen, do you see any particular states to keep an eye on uh, in the the fight ahead for the ERA, especially as the ERA is kind of being re-explained right now through this show that's that smearing my area. You know, okay, I know in area. Virginia there's a kerfuffle about it because I teach there, and Virginia okay. has recently gone from Republican to Democrat, and there's a big push for the ERA. So people who can be aware of it, it's big in your local newspaper when it hits. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming in and helping clarify, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment and the lack of clarity that has been out there as people are, you know, proving talking points, but not really discussing the real concern that it posed back in the 70s and have come true today. That is Helen Alvarez. You can find her work at SSRN.com. We'll provide a link at RelevantRadio.com forward slash trending in the archive. You can listen to more of Trending with Timory via the Relevant Radio app or at relevantradio.com slash trending.